God makes men and women with a lean, hardwired in, such that we are inclined to seek out one another. I think that's beautiful. I think that is helpful and liberating. I, I think it means that we don't have to be good at everything. We just need to find our corresponding part. We have to find the helper that is fit for us, the one who is strong where we are weak, the one who's lean leans into us. My wife and I have a saying, it takes two people to live one good life. You can borrow that if you like, because we stole it from the Bible. That is precisely what this verse is saying. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. It takes two people to live one good life. That sure is an unpopular concept in our contemporary culture, but as we're going to see today, it's a truth that is hardwired into God's creation and that goes all the way back to the very first chapters of Holy Scripture. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 2. Before we begin reading the text, we should probably address a contention that many people make nowadays in an effort to avoid some of the apparent difficulties that exist between the scientific account of origins and what we find in the Bible. Many Christian folks will say that we must read and interpret Genesis 1-3 to differently than we interpret other sections of the Bible. And they will say that we, we need to do this because Genesis 1-3 to is clearly intended to be understood as poetry. It's a sort of poetic parable explaining origins in general terms, but it should not be read as history. And that allows people to more or less pick and choose what they want to believe and what they want to discard under pressure from culture and science. But however attractive that option may be, it doesn't accord with what we see in the text. E.J. Young, the Old Testament scholar from Westminster Seminary, who probably studied these three chapters more than just about anyone else that I can think of, he wrote a whole book on Genesis 3 and another book on Genesis 1-3, to and numerous articles on everything in the book of Genesis puts it plainly. So he, he knows of what he speaks, and he, and he puts it this way. He says, Genesis is not poetry. There are more poetical accounts of creation in the Bible, such as Psalm 104, certain chapters of Job, and they differ completely from the first chapter of Genesis. Hebrew poetry has certain characteristics, and they are not found in the first chapter of Genesis. So the claim that Genesis 1 is poetry is no solution at all. The man who says, I believe Genesis purports to be a historical account, but I do not believe that account, is a far better interpreter of the Bible than the man who says, I believe Genesis is profoundly true, but it is poetry, end quote. Genesis is not poetry. It doesn't present itself as poetry. It doesn't have any of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. It presents itself as history. Now, certainly it is unusual history because God is intervening very dramatically in cosmic and human affairs, but it is not poetry, and it is not allegory, and it is not a parable. It presents itself in straightforward Hebrew prose. Now, in terms of the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it seems that what is happening here is that we are zooming in. Genesis 2 is a zoomed-in account of the creation story with its focus exclusively now on the creation of the man and the woman. So 
Think of it maybe like Google Earth. The first chapter gives you the big picture, like looking at the world from space. And then chapter two zooms down to street level and tells you in detail the story of the first man and the first woman. And this is a further reminder that human beings represent the pinnacle of God's creative order. We are not just animals. We are exalted creatures. We are the object of God's special and particular care. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I love what Derek Kidner says about this text. He says, It is the rest of achievement being spoken of here, not inactivity. For he nurtures what he creates. We may compare the symbolism of Jesus seated after his finished redemption to dispense its benefits. Closed quote. I love that. The Jews rested on the seventh day under the old covenant because God had completed a work that they were invited to enjoy. On the seventh day, they entered into the rest of God's achievement to experience that and to rejoice in all of its benefits. Christians in the new covenant rest in what Jesus did on the first day of the week. Thus, the book of Hebrews says, we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God rested after achieving the work of creation and invited us to share in that rest, so Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, having completed his work of redemption, and he now invites us to enter into that rest and to enjoy its benefits. So worship, then, is fundamentally about enjoying what God has done, resting in his benefits and blessings, and expressing our thanks and gratitude. Let's jump into the text again at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Notice the care and intimacy of this description. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates by divine fiat. He speaks, Vayomer Elohim, and we have light, sky, land, plants, animals, and people. But here we learn that God doesn't just speak the man into being. This act of creation is far more tactile. God forms the man out of the dust of the earth and breathes into him the breath of life. There is touch here. There's even a kiss here. This is a special act. And again, it expresses the incredible gap between humanity and the other animals. God doesn't do this for the monkeys or the squirrels or the dolphins. This is an intimate act. This is a familial act, and it reminds us that human beings are incredibly exalted creatures. Verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, 
And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We spoke yesterday about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It it clearly represents the moral freedom that was given to the man and the woman. Now, the fact that it is a, a symbol does not mean that it wasn't a real tree. A thing can be real and have symbolic value. For all we know, this could have been a pineapple tree. All we know is that God said that it was out of bounds and that eating from it would require them to believe themselves independent of the word of God. We'll talk more about that later. Verse 10 says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The point here is that the garden is good, and it has within it everything that humanity might need to accomplish the cultural mandate. We're going to hear about that cultural mandate in just a second. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The job of human beings is to work with the natural resources that God has generously provided. Human beings are told to have dominion and to cultivate, that is to impress their own personality and sense of beauty on the raw materials they've been given. So they can take wood and make tables, they can take fibers and make carpets, they can carve instruments, make tools, build houses, towns, cities, and eventually a culture. God welcomes the man into the ongoing work of creation But that work is supposed to be done in submission to the binding authority of God's word. We hear about that in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here and ask a question that a friend of mine recently asked me. I'm curious to know why you think the tree in the garden was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That sounds like a tree we as followers of a good God would want to experience, doesn't it? Like I've had people say to me, why would a good God want to hide the information from a tree that helps us understand good versus evil? Shouldn't that be something we know about to maybe make better decisions? If it were a real bad scene to get involved with, why didn't God call it the dark tree or the forbidden tree or something like that? Yeah, no, I understand the question. The, the issue isn't so much about discovering good and evil as much as it is about determining good and evil. In essence, the tree represented the opportunity for Adam and Eve to make moral decisions apart from the authority of God's word. So the tree was just a test. God said to Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one. And he put a fence, as it were, around one tree and said, for reasons I'm not going to explain to you, this tree is off limits. And so the test was basically this. Do you trust me enough to treat my word and the limitations that I prescribe as authoritative? Can you obey 
even when you don't understand. And as we get into chapter three, it becomes clear that the devil understands the nature of the test because he tries to get Eve to doubt God's essential goodness. He begins to suggest that the reason that God put the fence around this tree is because this is the best tree in the whole garden. God is holding out on you. God is keeping the best things, the most pleasurable things, the most advantageous things all to himself. And so Eve leaves the word of God as her authority for making decisions, and she begins to trust her own discernment. She looks at the fruit. She determines that it is good for food and a delight to the eyes and able to make one wise, and she eats and she gives some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so you can see that their discernment, their knowledge, their wisdom has become the basis for making moral decisions apart from, and in this case, in contradiction to, the teaching and authority of God's word. That is sin. Sin is lawlessness. It is doing what seems right to us as opposed to what is written in God's word. So it's really about who gets to decide right and evil. Yeah, exactly right. Moses, in one of his last sermons to the people of Israel, reminds people of this fundamental reality. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That's Deuteronomy 29, 29. So God doesn't have to tell us everything we want to know. He is God, after all. We are not. And so he tells us what he wants to tell us. And if we want to live in his world forever, then we need to trust him and obey him. That is the deal. (laughs) That was the deal in my house growing up now that I think about it. Yeah, me too. Now, interestingly, in some traditions, this deal, as we're referring to it, is called the covenant of creation. A covenant is basically a deal between two parties, and this does have all the traditional elements of a biblical covenant. God says, basically, you can live forever in this ideal world with me, surrounded by all these blessings, if you trust and obey my word. But if you don't, if you attempt to usurp my authority so as to be like God's deciding right and wrong for yourselves, then you will die. That is the deal. That is the covenant of creation. Okay, that's really helpful. I'm glad I asked. Let's jump right back into the text. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. So, man is an exalted creature. Man is a ruling creature, but man is not an autonomous creature. We are subject to the word and will of God. Now, you need to notice here that in this zoomed-in telling of the story of the creation of human beings... The man was created first. We're about to get to the story of Eve's creation, but as of verse 17, she's not yet on the scene, which means that she was not present when God gave his word of command to the man. So obviously part of Adam's job was to steward and communicate the word of God to his family. That fact will become very important when we get to chapter 3. But for now, let's jump back into the text of verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, this is the first time that anything in God's creation is called not good. Up until this point, everything has been good, and some things have been very good, but now this is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Human beings are communal creatures. 
We desire intimate relationships, and that's a good thing. That's a God thing. That is something that God hardwired into the human species. You were made for intimate relationships. One intimate human relationship in particular. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, some people today don't like the word helper. It almost makes it sound like the woman was created to be the man's servant. But that isn't what the word means. In fact, in the Bible, the most common referent for that word is God himself. God is often called our helper because he is the one who is strong in all the ways that we are weak. That's what the word means. It means that God created the man with strategic deficiencies, not imperfections, just deficiencies that would draw him into a relationship with a woman. God makes men and women with a lean hardwired in such that we are inclined to seek out one another. I think that's beautiful. I think that is helpful and liberating. I I think it means that we don't have to be good at everything. We just need to find our corresponding part. We have to find the helper that is fit for us, the one who is strong where we are weak, the one whose lean leans into us. My wife and I have a saying, it takes two people to live one good life. You can borrow that if you like, because we stole it from the Bible. That is precisely what this verse is saying. Verse 19 says, Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, And to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I think this is a display of the fatherly wisdom of God. God shows Adam a whole bunch of bad options before presenting him with the partner of his dreams. God, in his wisdom, stirs up a sense of need so as to ensure that his daughter will be properly appreciated. And so she would be. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woe Man! Because she was taken out of man. Adam rejoices over the wife that God has given him. He understands their essential unity. She is woman because she was taken out of man, as man will be taken out of women. There is an essential interdependence woven into the story that we have lost in our culture. This story says that men and women are creatures of remarkable dignity. It says that they are not the same. They are marvelously and helpfully different. They need each other and they rejoice in each other. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Listen, my friends, sex was not the first sin. Sex between a man and his wife is never a sin. It was part of their essential innocence. It was part of their holiness. 
The man and the woman rejoiced in what God had given. They enjoyed the permission and kindness of the Lord as found in the body and soul of the other. They were naked and unashamed. That is a good place. That is a good gift. Thanks be to God. I love those words at the end of the chapter. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You often hear those words read at Christian weddings, and all the little kids snicker usually after that. Uh, What does that mean, or what should that mean for the young couple getting married? Well, I think it means, first of all, that you have to leave your parents in order to build a new life together as husband and wife. Remember, Adam and Eve didn't have parents, so obviously the Bible is speaking in a paradigmatic way here. And that in itself is important for us to see. This isn't just a story. It is a story. It's a true story. But it is a story in a couple of different ways. It is true in the sense that it happened. Adam and Eve really did come together in a one flesh union. But it is also true in a paradigmatic sense, in the sense that this is the goal and the intended pattern for all people everywhere. The goal is for every single bride and groom on their wedding to be the establishment of a new and separate family under God. So practically speaking, that means that the new couple should strive to establish themselves as an independent financial unit. Mom and dad should not be subsidizing your mortgage. Mom and dad shouldn't be bailing you out of bad decisions. And mom and dad shouldn't be arbitrating your disagreements. There's a sense in which being poor and being on your own is necessary for you to get your feet under you as a couple. So be careful, moms and dads, about how much you are popping over in those first few years. And be careful, bride and groom, how much you are depending on mom and dad and inviting mom and dad into your private business. I can almost hear mom and dad saying amen. (laughs) There does have to be a leaving as part of the cleaving. And then the last verse there says that they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing dirty, nothing embarrassing, nothing hidden about their sexuality. And why would there be? There's nothing sinful about marital sexuality. Sex is one of the things that is good and beautiful and life-giving when done God's way and dangerous, destructive, and deadly when done our way. But it's important for us to see here that this couple was naked and unashamed. That's the goal in Christian marriage, to be fully known and completely accepted. It's not easy to get there in this fallen and sinful world, but that is still the desire of every human heart. Mm, Amen. That is so good. I love what you said there about this story being true in the sense that it happened, but also true in the sense that it establishes a pattern. And that's going to be true again in chapter three, isn't it? Yes, very much so. Chapter three is the story of the first sin. But in a sense, it's also the story of every sin. It is a narrative And it establishes a pattern, just like we have here in chapter two. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And I know our listeners are, too. In the meantime, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.